welcome to A Time to Thrill. This is Amy Austin, who also writes as Sylvie Fox. I'm about to do an interview with Kilby Blades. She's an author I came to know. It's so weird with authors. Um, a long time ago, probably not that long ago, maybe two years ago, um, I met her through an author forum on the Romance Writers of America uh, website. They have, well, probably more than one forum, but I met her in the Published Authors Network. And the topic at the time was about um, racism in the Romance Writers Association. If you haven't kept up, maybe I'll link to a couple of articles in the New York Times or Washington Post or wherever that talked about the great upheaval that happened in Romance Writers for America. Um, I don't know. I belonged to RWA for hmm, a lot of years, uh, and um, I will say, so let me say this, my affiliation has been on and off. Um, I joined, it's a great community of women. Um, there are two chapters in Southern California where I met some great author friends, got a lot of support as I entered the world of publishing. I think I joined in 2008, that sounds about right. And at the time um, I joined, publishing was a completely different uh, ball of yarn, frankly. It has unraveled and changed into something completely different and probably unrecognizable from my 2008 self. But I joined and um, it was a great experience. I went to my first Romance Writers Conference. It was great to be surrounded by women who write and women who didn't think I was crazy because I have people talking in my head 24-7. What um, I think my first sort of break with romance writers had to do with something called, oh, what was it called? Harlequin Horizons. So I don't know what year this is, so I'd have to look this up. But um, Harlequin at the time was the foremost publisher of romance. Um, they had so many different lines, so many different books coming out. I want to say they published like one to two hundred books a month and um, they were an independent company then they've been purchased in since but at the time they they were I don't want to say the only game in town but certainly the biggest game in town so maybe they controlled 80% of the romance market and um, writers who wrote romance outside of that for you know the big at the time the big who <laughs> knows six I don't know it's probably more than that then um, publishers were on a different path, but that was certainly a smaller number of people who got advances, who got large print runs, who got publicity and support from publishers. So that was um, an interesting time. So Harlequin, at some point in <laughs> those many years ago, founded a little arm called Harlequin Horizons, where authors that they were going to reject, they were going to shuttle off into this uh, vanity press service. It was the bizarrest little thing. And uh, Women's Writers of America does not support vanity presses at the time. And um, they twisted themselves into this torturous sort of pretzel in order to support Harlequin because the publishers back then were the primarily primary supporters of the Romance Conference. So they paid who knows how much to come. And at that point, I sort of felt like we were sort of I don't know, sort of cattle being led to slaughter. 
it was like let's corral 600 mostly women in a big hotel and then we're gonna have these publishers maybe meet you maybe have these spotlights and try to sell you on why you should publish with them even though they are very restrictive and not particularly pro-author and look at what they've done they've now opened this vanity arm and we have poo-pooed vanity publishers for years but because harlequin is one of our big sponsors and publishes the majority of our authors we're going to twist ourselves into this ethical pretzel in order to support this Harlequin Horizons, at which point I think the sort of solution was we're going to support imprints that, you know, pay the author because money should always flow to the author. And we're sort of going to ignore this imprint that they have where the money is flowing from the author to Harlequin. I honestly have no idea what happened with Harlequin Horizons or anything, but that was my sort of first um, revelation that RWA may not be as author friendly and supportive as I thought, at least the organization as a whole, not individual authors particularly. So I believe I quit my membership then. I took a couple of years off and I think I rejoined in 2012. Um, when the landscape had changed, um, my publishing career trajectory had changed and I was like, I want to be back with this group of supportive women and in order to do this on the local level I have to be a member of the national organization so I rejoined and um, the local meetings I mean I mainly have attended meetings in Los Angeles and in Orange County and they're lovely and they're delightful and the meetings are super helpful the information is probably priceless on how to navigate uh, publishing um, it's information that I, when I meet published authors who did not start in the romance community, do not have. So I cannot in any way discount that super beneficial part of the organization, those, the local, working on the local level. Nationally, eh. So a few years ago, maybe two or three years ago, um, I think the sort of racism that has been inherent in RWA sort of bubbled up and came to light. And as well as they handled Harlequin Horizons, they handled this. So again, they twisted themselves into a pretzel to say that they were not disadvantaging authors of color in many arenas, whether it's awards or services or whatever. So I wasn't convinced. But um, what was interesting is I rarely read the online forum for the same reason I try to stay off Facebook and other things because while there are a lot of positives the negatives sometimes outweigh that and will just exhaust you but a friend of mine was like there's a dumpster fire you should go in and look and I was like okay well I have a couple hours where I'm procrastinating for writing let me go look in this dumpster fire and it was insane it was insane however there was one voice of sort of reason and logic, and that is Kilby Blades. And I was reading her posts, and I was like, oh my god, there's a beacon of light here in this dumpster fire. Maybe she's going to extinguish it and put it out. That didn't happen. It raged on, to be honest, for a few years, and then the whole thing imploded. And, um, and then COVID, so who knows what would have happened, but the RWA had a huge sort of implosion right that dovetailed with covid so i don't know what is going to rise from the ashes whether it's a phoenix or something else but all that said we'll see about that but kilby was the voice of reason so 
needless to say, I was like, who is this woman who's saying all these rational and reasonable and logical things? And um, at that point, I clicked on, I'm sure there's a link somewhere in the form. I clicked on her. Um, and at that point, I think I bought, oh God, see, I should always look this up before I do the recording. I bought whatever book was available at the time and I read her book and I was like, not only is she logical and like a beacon of light and maybe she'll come in and extinguish the dumpster, dumpster fire, but she also is a great writer. Um, so I'm going to have to go look that up. Um, it's in my Goodreads list somewhere. And um, I read that, her book, and I thought, oh, this is lovely and delightful. I don't know if I sent her an email. I feel like I may have that said, thank God for you, because I don't have the time to do this heavy lifting. Um, who knows? Maybe it was just in my head. <laughs> I may have never sent it. Um, I'll certainly ask her. So at that point, I don't know. I mean, you know, I have a life going on. And um, I think I was in Texas in, let's say, 2019. I feel that that's the case. And I went down to the bar. I was going to enjoy um, my first martini. So um, a little background. When I was in college, I had a friend. We were in New York um, at a bar at some college break, no doubt. And she, we were both from New York City, so we were just, we were home, really. But we were in a bar. I don't know. It was cold. So sometime in, let's say, November between Thanksgiving and Christmas sounds right, or maybe even January. I have no idea. Um, and at some point, the bartender was like, what do you want to drink? And I was probably 21 and had no idea. If you don't have to think about it, I'd probably been 21 for two months. And I had no idea what I was going to drink. So who knows what I ordered? I couldn't even tell you. But at the time, my friend said to me, you know, what you need is a signature drink. You need a drink that you can go into any bar and order um, know that you're going to enjoy it, know that it's going to have whatever level of alcohol it is that you want, but you can't do this hemming and hawing at the bar. So I can remember she recommended a drink. Oh my God. I think I drank it for like a good couple of years. It was something sweet. Wow. Can't even remember that. Who knows? I don't have to really think about that. That said, um, I went through my signature drink phases. Um, to be honest, I now just order probably white wine or red wine in a bar. I don't really have any time for um, alcohol that's going to make me too buzzed. But um, I took that advice to heart. And um, now every so often I think to myself, cause as I get older, there's so many drinks I haven't had. Let me think. My mother's signature drink was Dewar's and Ginger. Um, but she was an alcoholic, so I certainly didn't follow that path. My father's signature drink was uh, Bloody Mary. I remember that because in New York City, children used to be able to go into bars. And so occasionally my father, um, he actually had a gambling addiction. So after um, placing his bet on the horses at um, OTB, Off Track Betting, which is a little parlor they used to have with like this big green sign in New York City, it actually... I think either went bankrupt, went out of business. I was sort of sad about that. Um, but after um, betting an OTB, sometimes he would have like a drink and uh, I went with him and I don't know. You know, New York has always been pretty liberal. I have never been carded in New York in my life. I imagine that nowadays it's 
has more rules. Maybe not. I have no idea. But I used to go and he would um, have the Bloody Marys. But I never, um, so growing up with an alcoholic, drinking was never a priority. Getting drunk is never a priority. I've actually never been drunk. And uh, thinking about drinking has never been a priority. But my friend was right. It makes it easier when you go to a bar, which I'm going to tell you, I've been to five bars in my life. I don't go to bars that often. To um, order a drink, it's good. So all of this to say that on the night I think I finally met Kilby Blades in person, I had decided that I was going to have a martini because I'd never had one ever in life. So I go down to the bar at the Four Seasons and order a martini, which by the way, not good, that particular martini. I've thought since maybe of ordering another one. I don't know in what universe I'm going to be at another bar and anytime soon. Um, to order a martini and I don't keep uh, drink mixers in my house. So who knows? That's just a, a thought I had. It seemed like, I don't know. It reminded me of like a level of sof- what I considered sophistication um, when I was like a teenager to order like a martini and I want it dry or whatever. Um, and I don't think I'd ever had a gin drink. So I go down to order this martini because this is like how I'm going to spend my evening at a writer's conference <laughs> having a martini. And um, my friend, uh, Margaret, Maggie Marr, who's an author, was sitting at the bar with other authors whom I guess you probably have heard of all of them. doesn't matter. And one of the people at the table was Kelly Blades, and I was so excited to meet her in person. And we had a lovely chat um, that night, later. I don't know. Maybe that martini went to my head. But she is like one of those people you meet who's just like a clear thinker and like you're like you're smart and you got it figured out for the most part thank god that you exist on this earth to help the rest of us and that's my introduction to Kelly Blades um and I will say this this is kind of funny so at some point another author friend of mine uh, Marina Maddox who writes paranormal right now um calls me this is all before COVID and she's like she was in Northern California and she's like, I'm going to lunch with Kilby Blades. I was like, I am so excited. She's like, so am I. Um, so she went to lunch and then later she called me, emailed, texted, whatever. And she was like, Kilby read one of your books. And I was like, oh my God. And I start like spinning around because I'm so excited that Kilby read one of my books. I think the books that she read was The Good Enough Husband, which is a book I deeply, deeply love. So that was exciting. Um, and she enjoyed the book. I don't know. She actually may have listened to it on audiobook. We, I don't remember that part. But I was so excited. I was spinning around and I like called a friend and I was like, you know what? Kilby Blades read one of my books. I'm super, super excited. Um, and that I think encapsulates all of my feelings about <laughs> drinking, gambling, and Kilby Blades. So let's get ready to talk to her. Hi, this is Amy Austin, who also writes as Sylvie Fox, and I'm here with the lovely and delightful Kilby Blades. Um, as you'll know from the intro, I met her in person in, I hope I get this right, Houston, Texas, um, in a bar at the Four Seasons. Kilby, how are you? I am great. Hello. I know. So you're in California, yes? I am, yeah. We're both in California, so I'm in Northern. Okay. I just want to make sure you, how can I say this? 
several of my friends have fled. Um, so they're not here right now. Two people I actually yeah. sold their house, but a lot of them are staying at their cabin, wherever their cabin may be. <laughs> I No, I am physically at my actual house with no imminent plans to leave California, mainly because I am afraid to get on an airplane, though it would be nice to get away to someplace. No, so I will say this right before I got on with you. Actually, I, I told my friend I had to stop texting her because she was on a plane. And I'm like, where are you going? And she's like, I'm going to DC and then I'm flying to Georgia. And I'm like, hmm, yeah, so no, not for me. You know, I think there's, I mean, there are places that I want to go badly, but there's no place that I want to go badly enough to quarantine. Right. Mm -hmm. I think that's my thing. Like I, I'm, I'm skeptical about flying right now, but to me, it's just like, it, would it be worth the keeping everybody safe that's on both ends of the trip? And for me, that's a big no. No, I have thought about it. I have, trust me, because a friend, um, I don't know if you know, there's an author named Nancy Warren. And um, like me, she spends part of her time in Europe. And she was just talking about going and we were discussing like wearing the masks and changing every four hours and all these rules they had about flying to Europe um, before you could, before they closed it just recently. And um, all I could think of is I want to go so bad. And my 10 year old is constantly like, I miss it so much. We were just talking about it yesterday, but I don't, that risk is not one I'm willing to take, although I desperately want to travel right now. I can't even. This is the longest time I think I've been off an airplane in my entire life, and it's been about a year. Yeah, no, me too. I keep checking to see whether I still have my status on American. So They've they been very gracious in drawing it out, but this is definitely a moment. I'm, I'm jealous of folks with RVs and with sailboats because I feel like now is the moment that justifies you know, all the money they spent on those purchases. I, can I say I said the same thing? So I never understood, um, both living on East Coast and West Coast, why people bought a second house like two hours from their first house. Right. Um, so I was like, I just don't understand. Like, I'm going to drive from one to the other. Like, to me, it always felt weird. And now that they're all at their second houses, I feel so very jealous. I'm like, oh, so if I had bought a place in Big Bear, I could be camped out there instead of in Los Angeles. But lesson learned. I don't. I still don't think I would buy a second house down the street from the first one, but I see the appeal so much right now. Yeah, I do too. And it's funny because when we, so we have a second place in South America, which is where my partner's family is. And when we bought it, we were like, it's not that, you know, it's like all you have to do is get on the plane for a day and then we'll be there. And you know, now that this is happening, it's it's quite clear how far away it is if we're really in a situation where it's not easy to just hop on a plane. No, and it's something I you, we talked about this a little bit online recently, but I have the same situation. So I have um, my apartment in Budapest. And but the thing is, I was there like two or three times a year um, for the last eight and this I haven't been there for over a year. I was there last August and I was going to go in December and I was like, no, what I'll do is I'll just go in the spring. I'm going to like hang out for the winter and do some stuff. And A, I wish I'd gone in December. <laughs> um, but B, I now know, like people had said to me, it's, is it difficult to maintain a house that's like across an ocean? And I was like, no, it's no problem. You know, I just get on a plane and go whenever I have to deal with anything. And it's true. And now yeah. I don't at all have that option. And all I spend my time doing is, can I even tell you, asking people for favors. Can you just do this thing? Because I can't be there. And I got some notice from the government and they're like, can you come in? And I was like, I cannot come in. Um, but it's interesting 
I guess I didn't realize how much I had relied on like airplanes and regular transport as just a way to get where I wanted to go. No, totally true. Like right now I'm in the middle of paying taxes on my place and it's, it's more complicated when I haven't been there in a year. No, exactly. I had actually the same thing. The notice was from what they call NAV, but it's the tax authorities. And I was like, they wanted to change the account where you deposit your health insurance payments, but I pay a year in advance. So I just don't have to deal with the monthly charges. And of course they're like, well, can you transfer six months? And I was like, oh my gosh. I was like, just tell me what the form is. And then I had to spend all my time translating in my head the form and then filling out the form and then sending the form and hoping it got there within the time limit. And it's just, it's a lot more than if I had, it would have been, I would have been there and I would have just walked into whatever office and transferred the money. It's a lot. And we're not set up for this. Like nobody was prepared for like, there are a lot of weird situations that are popping up that just nobody really knows how to deal with within bureaucracies. Yes. Um, And yes, exactly. And so the answer was always come in. And I was always like, oh, I'll be there in two weeks, six weeks, whatever. And people would usually let it go until I got there. And now I don't have any sort of projected plans. I mean, and still because we got residency, I can go because that's it's not the issue where I would not be prohibited from entering the country. But then getting there seems really dangerous, to be frank. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, there where I feel like we're just you know, trying to hang on in the middle of a crisis and, you know, to that 5% of like functionality and sanity related to everyday life and like 95% of situations and and things and like everything that's to come in the future. We're just not even having time to think through how everything else is going to function. It's weird. No. And I found out that I don't do well with uncertainty. Um, I I think (laughs) I knew, I know, I'm sure I knew it. What I did is I didn't deal with it. I mean, I just always plan, plan, plan. And this is the first time in my life where I can't plan. And it's very, um, it's a mind bender. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's unsettling. I think I've largely uh, descended into uh, an obsession with K-dramas <laughs> and kind of just hunkered down. And that's what I'm doing. And I'm sure the moment will come when I have to, you know, be in more than survival mode and, and face other things. Okay, so you have just hit on one of my absolute favorite things in the world, K-dramas. What are you watching? (laughs) So a friend of mine says to me the other day, she was like, I'm thinking about getting into K-drama. Where should I start? And I was like, oh, oh, oh. And I landed, I think, on Winter Sonata. Um, Mm. But I was like, I think you have to start there. And then I explained to her the every every other episode cliffhanger because they – well, used to, I don't know, anywhere, air two episodes a week. So the second one would always end on a cliffhanger, the even number episodes. Um, but I, I think I told her that's where to start. But I was watching Crash Landing into you. Have you seen that? <laughs> it's so good. Oh, my God. So I love the references to all the K-drama. Like, it, it just, I was delight. I was just twirling around my house, like, singing and dancing because I thought <laughs> that the references were so great, and especially when they had the star of Winter Sonata on, I like nearly like fell over on my living room floor. I was like, look at this. <laughs> now this I am beautiful. I am, I am new to K dramas. So, but I'm all in. So it's the kind of thing where I had the one that was my first one, which was Itaewon class. Okay. And from there I was like 
somebody recommended a different one to me and then I just got the Vicky like I got Vicky which is the oh, yeah yeah Rakuten yes. like mm-hmm. subscription service and there's like a 4.99 a month level so I was like oh I'll just get the 4.99 a month that'll be sufficient nope now I have the <laughs> 9.99 a month level and then I got a Chromecast so that I can like stream it from devices I mean the whole thing is just really really nuts like how quickly I've how quickly I've become addicted so um right now I'm watching Healer okay and that's um, more of a suspensey one. It's romancy, but it's suspensey as well. Yeah. Oh, um, I feel like I want to send you. So I used to, I started watching them when I had to get them on DVD and order them from Hong Kong. And mm-hmm. um, there's a place, uh, there's a place. Um, so I have maybe like 20 of them on the shelf in my Oh my gosh. That, that is seriously, that's hardcore. Like that's dedication. Though I feel like I'm addicted enough at mm-hmm. this point, like if the only way for me to get them was DVD, like I would go there. Oh, A, shipping from Hong Kong. Well, this is pre-COVID. Surprisingly, shockingly fast. And mm. B, <laughs> so enjoyable. So, oh, I will not go on too long. But the winter, the the, the director of Winter Sonata did like a whole seasons one. So there's like Spring Waltz. And so there's four of those. And then I just, there's so many and they're so good. <laughs> I, I no, absolutely I have to add that one to my watch. I haven't seen Witcher Sonata. I have to add that one to my watch list. The one, my favorite so far, I think is, um, have you seen what's wrong with secretary Kim? Yes. <laughs> That's my favorite one. I keep going back to rewatch that, even though there are other ones in my queue and I'm like, but it's so good. Oh, so I will, um, I will, I will take a photo of my shelf. Actually, maybe I'll email you a list because there are, I have many. Well, no. So I have a friend. I will be honest. What happened was I had this, um, I used to be a lawyer and um, in one of those lawyer type jobs, I had a friend who loved Korean dramas and we were talking one day about, I was talking to her about some Bollywood movie and she's like, do you watch Bollywood movies? I'm like, I do. I'm like, I love singing and dancing and a little drama because who, whatever because I grew up in New York on theater and so singing and dancing and drama is to me beautiful and she was like I think you're gonna like Korean drama so she goes you know she brings me one and I didn't get to sleep until 3 a.m and mm. then I had to show up at work on Tuesday and look at her and go okay so uh this this is a dick an addiction <laughs> this I don't know what you've done to me but I didn't sleep the whole week watching that one <laughs> So there's an, there's a Facebook group, a private Facebook group of like authors and editors who like K-dramas and we really deconstruct them from a story perspective. It's like, why aren't you allowed to have flashbacks in, you know, like romances here, but like flashbacks are great in K-dramas and like, you know, there are all these coincidences, you know, if I, if I submitted a book with as many coincidences as you see in (laughs) K-drama, my editor would like laugh me out of the room, but it's like, they have all of these story elements that we are told not to use in like, like American romantic fiction. And it Mm -hmm. totally works. This is true. I'm just thinking about crash landing into you with the whole Switzerland thing. Um, it right, is, right. <laughs> but we saw each other from afar and you were, yeah. So um, it does. And so I think that's actually what initially drew, drew me to it because in, at least with American um, TV movies, um, books, there's a certain level of predictability, a certain way we tell stories that's similar, even when there are, you know, outliers. And I think that, it was just a new way of storytelling. And I was like, look at this. Like it was just, I, it was unexpected. So everything that happened was unexpected. So that kept me like, you know, glued. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I get it now. It's a different kind of structure that is 
they are more similar to each other, obviously, than different. But I still am always glued because I'm like, are you going to do that element? How are you going to do it? How are you going to do it differently? So to me, they are fascinating. And I love storytelling. So I'm always interested in different um, storytelling methods. My other favorite is British novels, um, although they're kind of long and dry sometimes. But I feel that they have like a different sort of uh, perspective on storytelling. You know, it's interesting. I've said with another friend of mine who really loves K-dramas, it's like, if this were not COVID, we we would, like, go to Korea and find, like, a writing class. Like, literally, how can we, like, and I read in an article recently that, like, 70% of um, screenwriters for K-dramas are women. Yes. I think it's just fascinating. Like, I really, I want to study Korean storytelling, and I'm convinced oh, yeah. there's a way for me to expense a trip to Korea in order to achieve this. Oh, so I went to Korea. I've been to Korea. Um, I don't know what to say. It is, it it is actually one of the best visits, trips I ever had. I have favorite country visits, and they right now they're Poland, Korea, and Portugal. But um, it's one of my favorite trips ever. Um, it's a fascinating place, like fascinating history, interesting storytelling. I love the food. So it's just, um, it was a joy and a delight, and I recommend post-COVID a, a, a trip to Korea. Although I do have a friend who bought tickets from March a couple of months ago. She's like, I'm hopeful. And um, I think we've, she may have lost a little bit of hope on that one. Yeah, no, it's, it's a destination. We have, we should talk about that more later. And I might even recruit you for a writerish, a writerish trip. No, it would be great. Korea is so, I can't even tell you how delightful it is. Um, it's just, it is delightful and I highly recommend it. Um, and I have a friend that goes regularly, although, well, I'm sorry. She was last there in January and who knows what we were going to go travel together in uh, March, but obviously anyway, none of that happened. Who knows? <laughs> who knows? So I have to ask you, we were talking a little bit about traveling with children. How old are your children? So I've got uh, right now a seven-year-old and a 10-year-old. And how, so I will say this, I have been traveling with my child since uh, nine months. That's the first trip I took. I would not recommend that. He nursed the entire way between here and Frankfurt, and I don't remember anything after that. So, um, but, because um, nine hours of nursing is great. Um, but he, my first memory of like not so much enjoying traveling, he was like three or four and he wanted pizza. And so we're sitting in some restaurant abroad and he's eating his pizza and he's just happy and thrilled. And I'm drinking a glass of wine, looking at him, but there was no one to talk to because he was not chatty um, mm -hmm. while he was eating. He was just like eating and like looking around. And I was like, oh, this is not how food works. But um, <laughs> two, two years ago, we went to Krakow, Poland. And it was one of the best trips ever. Like he, it was the first time he didn't complain because we're, you know, children. So, yeah. Right. And so I was like, oh, our hotels, I want to stay on this side of town, but the castle that you want to see is on the other side of town, but it's going to be like a mile walk. And he looks at me, he goes, okay. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, okay. Um, and then we went to dinner together at like various restaurants and he was like chatty and charming and fun and he ate food without complaint. And I was like, oh, this is the travel companion I wanted. <laughs> Not that three-year-old. <laughs> um, so it's gotten to be a lot better. I would say like seven, eight, nine, ten. When he was seven, we went to, I don't know. We went somewhere. I We travel a lot, so I don't know. We went somewhere. And it was great. Um, we took we can take long train trips now. Like we took a train between um, Germany and Hungary rather than flying. Because the it, flying, it's like a 40-minute flight, but, you know, you spend all this time in the airport. 
and the train rides six hours, which is pretty much equivalent. And you can also see the scenery. And it was the first time he was able to like sit on a train and it be okay. It's a it's a victorious moment. So I've had the victorious moments that I've had are moments when they are appreciating what's surrounding them in a in the moment, mm-hmm. and also moments when we're home and they talk about something that I think they didn't remember, but they totally do. That happened the other day. We were talking about something, and when we were talking about the salt mines, there are these salt mines in Poland that are pretty famous. And we were talking about that, and he had talked about something I didn't remember. And I looked at him, and I still—I'm still actually trying to, <laughs> to be honest, excavate it from my memory, because he was like, "No, but mommy, I was there," and I was like, "You were there," and he was like, "I was there," and I was like, "Oh," but it's really interesting what sticks with them, and um, I find it interesting. I wonder what they'll be like as adults um, with this sort of um, travel, because my travel was very different. My mother liked the Caribbean. And so I've been to many of those islands. Um, th- these are not my favorite trips. I don't do beach vacations just for this reason. Um, but it's still shaped who I am. I have like lots of thoughts about like American Airlines and changing in Florida, <laughs> being in the Caribbean and all of these things. And so that's shaped how I am. So I just wonder the way we travel, he and I, has shaped how he is now. Yeah, it's I a lot of piece. It's funny that you mentioned that process piece of like you remember being in the airport. Like my kids have that experience too. Like my my uh, seven year old recently told me he was like, "Mommy, I really miss the airport." And I understand that because I miss the airport when I don't travel. <laughs> but you know, all everything is part of their experience. You know, it's not necessarily that thing that you go to see that you went to see. It's being in the airport and like having the confidence of familiarity and like knowing the process of going through, you know, security, you know, and um, one of the things that happens with my kids is that they really take care of each other when they travel. Like they've historically, they've been kind of frenemies where, Mm -hmm. you know, they argue, but then when we're in an airport, man, the big guy is looking out for the little guy and they hold hands and they have this awareness of themselves as being out in the world, which is different from how they behave and how they feel at home. It's, it's really, really interesting. I feel lucky that we have been able to travel as much as we have because it's totally shaped who they were. And I tell my son, I mean, I didn't travel a lot when I was younger. I, I tell my 10-year-old that I got on a plane for the first time when I was 10 and he can't believe it because oh, wow. that kid, okay. I mean, he has like free tickets because he's got so many free flyer miles. (laughs) I have that kid. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So it's, it's a wonderful thing. Oh, wow. This is so interesting because my, my kids have said to me, because we, we take a walk every day now because (laughs) we've got to do something. And um, he was like, oh, you know, I miss the lounges at airports. And I was like, really? He was like, yeah, I miss that. It was just so interesting because I thought to myself, I don't know if I miss that. I miss it all. So I don't know if that specifically, but he was like, no, and I miss the Heathrow Lounge. And he was like very specific about what he missed. And I thought that was interesting. But the other thing, we had a whole conversation about passports and, well, there's no tickets now. And I looked at him and I said, you've never held your own passport and you've never held your own like ticket. Like when, like in Europe, sometimes you have to scan it to get through the little turnstile. And Mm -hmm. I said to him, I said, well, what's it like? And he said, but I know you have it taken care of. And I said, so you just go to, I'm like, you just show up at airports. And he's like, yes. And I was like, I want to travel like you. (laughs) It made me laugh. You know, it's funny because my kids know that part too. Like for my kids, they love, like when we walk up to the TSA, I give them their passports and they're allowed to 
they take the passports and they show the passports and the TSA agent kind of looks over at them with a stern look and is like, what's your name? Mm-hmm. You know, and they have to like say their name and all that. And um, it's just, it's funny how many pieces of the process they pick up on and like, you know, how they integrate it. That's so, fa- it's interesting. I just, um, it's interesting because we sometimes talk about it mainly because we've been talking about travel a lot because yesterday um, we were we were going to go to see the pyramids in March and April, and obviously we did not go. But a friend of mine who lives part time in Egypt sent us like pyramid art on parchment paper. It's too hard to explain. And yesterday we finally went to go get it framed, and so we we were talking about travel in the car on the way to the frame store. But um, it's interesting what he misses and what he likes. But it, he's like, I like eating in the lounges, and I was like, okay. <laughs> Okay. He's like, but I still want to go to Machu Picchu. I'm like, so for the lounge and the food and not the thing itself, but we'll see. Yeah. Well, that's, it's funny. It sounds like your son has places that he wants to go. My, my kids have an increasing awareness of not just being along for the ride, but like, no, I want to go here. I want to go there. I want to go there, which is also really cool. No, lately. So because time, um, lately he has made a list and actually yesterday when we were standing in the frame store and she was asking about something of, you know, framing wise, and um, I said to him, oh, do you want to add whatever place we were talking about to the list? And he said, the list has three things on it. He was like, I think we shouldn't be so bold as to keep adding to it <laughs> right now. He was like, I don't know when we're going to go to those three places. And I thought, OK, fair enough. He wants to go to Thailand mainly. Can I even tell you this? So when you're here, you can't fly to Thailand directly. But when you're in London, you know, when you're sitting on the tarmac waiting in your 13th in line, um, there seems to be an, always a plane going to Thailand. And they have a big purple plane with like a big pretty symbol. And yeah. so this is the only reason my child wants to go to Thailand. He wants to fly in the purple airplane. Like that's his goal. <laughs> and so right. then, so then but I'm if like, you're a kid, that makes sense. If you're a kid, that makes total sense. <laughs> Um, but they can't fly. We can't fly directly from L.A. So I told him maybe we'll go on that plane. We'd have to fly from London or something different and figure out some kind of different trip. But he's that's his level. He's like, I just want to get on the purple airplane, mommy. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's so, so funny. I remember I, being a kid and liking different airlines for because of the way the planes looked. No. And so to be honest, I think it's probably a fair enough reason to go anywhere. I'm like, you know, that may be fair enough. <laughs> like fair enough, yeah. kid. Um, so I have to say this. Um, so before I'm getting much better at my podcast interviews, I actually looked up which one of your books is the first one I read because yeah. I couldn't. Well, no, I can't ever remember that I'm mortified, but it was Snapdragon. I just looked it up because Amazon is you know kind enough to tell you, you purchased this book on May 26, 2018, which I just right, found out. Right. Um, but um, I will say this. So I love clever titles and um, Spooning Leads to Forking is one of my favorite titles ever. <laughs> it's one of my favorite titles ever, too. I love that title. Um, so how did you come up with that? Because that's like, it, to me, it's like, it's like the, it's not the best title ever, but I was talking to somebody recently about Jingle Balls, which you know, um, yes. is an anthology that you were in with some friends of mine as well, who that hit USA Today a few weeks, more than a month, I don't know, time is passing back. And I love that title, um, but spinning leads to forking is better. <laughs> you know, I really love punny. I like puns in general. I really like punny names. The third book in the series after spinning leads to forking is going to be called Romancing the Stove, which I also <laughs> love. Um, and that one's actually going to have more of an international slash adventurous type feel, which I'm also excited about, just like Romancing the Stone. But I really like punny things. I feel like almost every, I feel like every book I'm working on right now has a punny 
uh, working title. Um, so I think it's just something I'll be doing more of. I do have a secret <laughs> as to how I find some punny names and I will tell you. Oh my God. You got it. If you would I like to know the secret. I do. Cause I don't think this way. Okay. So one of the, so I would say that probably the, some of the punniest titles for anything exist in the world of porn. Oh, you're right. That's true. (laughs) It's totally true. So sometimes when I'm looking for titles for books, like I wanted to, um, the, the book that I wrote for the Jingle Balls anthology, I was like, it's an, it's an anthology and it's a steamy anthology. So I needed to find kind of like a steamy name for a Christmas short story. So I immediately looked up Christmas porn, not because I want to see Christmas porn, but I looked (laughs) up Christmas porn because I wanted to find a title that would be a good title for a steamy Christmas romance. And lo and behold, I found slay my name. I did not invent that. I looked up (laughs) Christmas porn and that's how I found slay my name. So I actually look up porn to find the titles for a great number of stories that I'm writing. And sometimes it helps, particularly if it's on the steamier side. So oh my go. god that's the that's actually the best thing ever and i know this like it's a it's you know knowledge that you have but i just would not have ever put those two together because i guess i don't think wow okay i'm sorry i'm now amazed um okay so i have to ask you how you came to writing um because the way i came to you is um i was explaining in the intro a friend of mine says you gotta go on the rwa forum which i stay away from and see what's going on. And I clicked on it and I was like, oh, there's one sane person talking. Let me see what she's saying. <laughs> um, to be, I'm not kidding. And so, um, and then I clicked the link and bought the book, whatever that this book must have been, it must've been 2018. I see that now, like May 26, 2018 is probably the day I was doing it. And, um, and then I bought this book. <laughs> um, but what, so what made you, okay, RW notwithstanding, what made you start writing? So I've, I've actually always been a film and television junkie and I discovered fan. I, I come from a family where everybody writes and I, I wrote short stories that, you know, when I was younger, but when I was in college, I discovered fan fiction and I okay. discovered it because of a television fandom that I was into. And the best part about fan fiction is a lot of people were writing it because you could write things that were a never going to happen on the screen right? or B uh, you thought the writers got it wrong. Okay. And I was watching a show where I thought the writers got it wrong. I thought they got the romantic pairing wrong. And I discovered fan fiction. It was like, oh, all these people are writing stories about the couple that I actually care about because they're clearly the real couple of the show, right? <laughs> right. So it was kind of, it was a way for me at first to read what I wished I was seeing in that fandom that I cared about and then of course me being a writer you know there were moments where I was like oh what if this were the ending or what if this happened or what if Mm -hmm. that happened and fan fiction is really what got me into writing and I wrote in about five fandoms you know the west wing you know they just revived the west wing they Mm -hmm. had the special on HBO max a couple weeks ago you know I thought Sam and Josh were the real couple in the west wing so I wrote Sam and Josh fan fiction because I was like, they're totally in love with each other, like on some level. They're not gay, but like in an alternate universe, like they are totally the couple. Um, so for years and years, probably for 20 years, I wrote fan fiction just for fun. And then I, um, at the time I was also a journalist. I was writing for Hollywood News. Okay. Um, so I, because I like entertainment, because I like television and movies. Mm-hmm. And um, 
I was going to Comic-Con and, you know, still being part of certain fandoms and a fandom that I was writing for, a lot of the authors were getting super, super big right at the moment that I started having my kids. Oh gosh, of course. (laughs) Right. So I left the fandom to go raise tiny people and not sleep for a few years. (laughs) And then when I emerged from my thick fog of motherhood, Mm All of these authors who had been part of my cohort, many of who I knew had become like New York Times bestselling authors. Right. And that was where I was like, well, I could hold my own next to these people when we were all writing fanfic at the same time. I'm just going to throw my hat in the ring and I'm going to start writing original fiction. And that's what really put me into like the author realm. That's so interesting. I remember the fog. I had a two-year hiatus. I call. I woke up. I started. I woke up at, with a two-year-old, and I thought, "Oh, I used to write books. What happened to that?" Like I literally, I didn't think. I thought I would write while he was napping, and that didn't happen. I didn't know. I didn't mean to laugh that hard. <laughs> that was reflexive. But yeah, I mean, I I totally lost my mojo. I didn't know whether I was going to ever write again because I had those moments where I just didn't know whether I was going to get my mojo back. I mean, it's hard to talk about, but those are really uncertain times when you have a really little kid and you're not sleeping. Mm -hmm. It feels, I mean, my life felt pretty out of control and I felt pretty unambitious to do anything apart from just kind of like survive. No, I, um, I, can I say this? So I think that you read, and this is like secondhand information. I was talking to Marina, um, months ago and I think she had had lunch with you and I believe that she said that you had read the good enough husband, which is a book I wrote. And, um, that is the book I wrote after the child. So I literally didn't think I to be frank, I'm going to be honest. I didn't think I could write another book. I like looked up, he was two and I was like, oh, my God, I don't know where I've been. Um, I don't know how years have passed. And I think I'm ready to write a book again. But I was, there was a lot of uncertainty. It was a very hard process. And I had written, I think, three books by then. But I just thought, I don't know what I, I just thought it was, it was gone. Like, it was like, oh, I, look, I had some magic and now the magic is gone. And that was, um, that was a hard uphill battle. And I was so proud to have finished it that I was yeah. like, oh, I think I can, I think I can do this again. Um, obviously I'm going to have to do it differently because now there's a tiny person, but um, I can do it. But it was, it was, it's, I don't know how to explain it. It just, it descended upon me. <laughs> I don't know if it's hormones or just lack of sleep. There may be both. <laughs> no, I, I really loved that book, by the way. I talk about that book all the time. I recommend it to people. It's, it's the, the kind of book that I want to read that I don't think there's enough of. Just because I, it felt so real like that whole like you're trying to move on from a relationship and you like it's hard for you to extricate yourself from that relationship and I think so many women experience leaving men who don't understand why the relationship is over Mm -hmm. I love that no thank you I love actually it's one of my I I've been cautioned about doing this, but it's one of my favorite books. I've written like over 20. So, uh, you know, but it's one of uh, my favorites because I'll I'll be honest, like I I read, okay, when I've read a lot of different genres, my favorite probably end up being police procedurals and women's fiction, which is bizarre. But um, I read so many women's fiction, especially like in the 80s and 90s, where the marriage was like not, it was like not bad enough to leave and not good enough to stay. 
but in all of those books, they always stayed. And I always, it always left me feeling unsettled when I finished the book. And yeah, I think I sat down, I'd read one, like not maybe a few couple of years, obviously before, um, when I, before I had a kid and I was like, oh, here we go again. I'm like, but he's not nice. And you know, but they have kids and I get it. I was like, but I really want to change that story. That, that's yeah. all there is to it. Like I want a different story. I want a story where somebody goes from good enough to better. Um, and uh, that's that. But it really, I have strong, I have very strong feelings about how women's fiction goes. And I don't read it as much as I used to. So I don't know if that, if there has been a huge shift in women's fiction. Um, but it we was should one talk of the, about that. Yeah. So do you read women's fiction? I do. I read women's fiction and I write women's fiction. And there are stories that I'm inspired to write. And at oh. the same time, I have questions about my fit with women's fiction with women's fiction readers, because I think women's fiction sometimes does go in very specific ways that my books don't necessarily go in. Um, yeah. Though they are women's fiction. Right. I mean, that's what they are, but still. I agree with you. So I'm going to be frank that I stopped writing it. So I have maybe five titles. They're not under Sylvie Fox. There's two, I think, and I wrote under a different pen name. Um, and, well, I'm not writing it right now. I'll just say that. Um, because I really want so in my women's fiction, I want something different. So in the era that I started reading women's fiction, most of the women's fiction writers were um, authors who had, quote unquote, graduated from Harlequin and had gotten a bigger mm. deal, you know, for mm. a, a traditional full length, whatever, uh, book deal. And so those were the writers. So the bent to me was similar, but just with more family drama or more whatever. But even the books I see now mostly advertised because I still am quite drawn to the fi women's fiction covers. Like I can't, it's like a moth to flame. Um, the covers always, are really good. They are. <laughs> like I can't, I, every time I'm like, oh, look at me. I, I once, I have a book in my house I bought three times and it took me like three years to read. <laughs> and I to brought it, I yeah. brought it home and my child looks at me and goes, do you not already own that? And I was like, do I own this? And he walks over to the shelf and pulls the other two down. And I was like, okay, so this is a problem. I'm going to actually read the book. Um, I, I could, it's like Maggie Dawson. I can see the cover. I just don't remember the title. But um, the titles, the, the covers draw me. The titles draw me. But lately, many of the themes seem to be, I went back home and rediscovered myself, my sister, my family, um, who I am. And I like those themes but I want I think what I want is more excavation and more of a level of discovery um, from the title characters and I have not seen that but I'm always on the lookout for it and I feel like in the 80s it was sort of headed that way but it it veered back um, mm. so there was a late 80s um, sort of where people were delving more into like the psychological reasons they did what they did or made the choices they made and that I really loved but it has so veered back to me and my sisters were on vacation and we were talking about our family and maybe there's a secret and that's not mm. necessarily what I'm looking for I want much more of a self-examination I want to say that self-examination mm. and growth from women and how they do it is how they do it, whether it's through romance or through job or whatever children, whatever that vehicle is to tell that story. I'm just looking for growth, I think, and a little bit more depth. Yeah, I, and I it's a strange genre. You're right, because I do think that women's fiction has inherited some non-women's fiction authors, and therefore you see things showing up that, that are fine within the genre, but that... Um, 
do a little bit more to muddy the waters of the genre. I'm actually, I don't think there's a lot of attention on how women's fiction is changing right now outside of very um, small circles, but I definitely think women's fiction is sort of next for some sort of reckoning. That's so interesting because a friend of mine said this to me about a year ago um, because because I love women's fiction so deeply and it's so close to my heart. I do think about it often, um, but to me, that's interesting because I have not seen, so there's been, you know, changes in romance, changes in thrillers, changes in probably other genres um, that I, I don't read sci-fi and fantasy, but I have not, see, women's fiction has stayed on the very narrow path for a very long time. Yeah. It has, though women's fiction is saying that it wants different kinds of authors and stories. And I belong to Women's Fiction Writers Association. I mean, they saw, like, I think they said it was between 300 and 400 new members. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that so many romance, I think the exodus of romance authors from RWA and them kind of, like, joining Women's Fiction Writer Association at a moment when publishing as a whole is going through a big moment of, like, a people change. Yeah, I, I think it'll just be interesting to see where women's fiction comes out. But do you think, so this is something uh, my friends and I have talked about, because I have a friend who um, is a very successful women's fiction author, um, but she has said sort of similar to YA or even, um, you know, books for children that in, how can I say this? The indie world, not has not embraced women's fiction. Uh, Indie women's fiction books have not broken out, I guess is what she would have said. Mm-hmm. And we talk about why that is. And uh, well, actually, I'll ask you, do you have any thoughts on why that is? So romance writers who are independent authors can sell a book like nobody's business. Um, but women's fiction, and I understand it may not be as broad of an audience, has not taken off in that way. Well, I think with romance, I mean, I think that readers read for tropes. Like when mm-hmm. I give people marketing advice, I always say you know, the the blurb isn't to tell readers what the book's about. The blurb is to drop breadcrumbs to show them that they're going to get the hero or the heroine they want, see the tropes they want, see some themes that they like. I think romance authors, uh, romance readers, as long as they know they're going to get that dopamine rush of whatever they like reading, they're Mm -hmm. open to more new authors. Whereas with women's fiction, I mean, you kind of have to trust the author to deliver an experience you want. Okay. And I think it's harder for women's fiction blurbs mm-hmm. to kind of show that you're going to end up with the book that you want. I think it's just harder to trust the author if you if the author's unknown to you. That's that's actually true. That is actually true. I had not considered it that way, but the promise of the premise. I think you're right about that. Um, you're right about that. So mainly, to be honest, I end up mostly buying women's fiction books. Um, if you're in Heathrow or whatever, they always have these two for one. Um, you know, by the first book, the second one is one pence and I'm a sucker for it. So that's, so all the women's fiction books on my shelf are those. I was just looking through because I was thinking about reading another one and then I realized I already read it. So moving on. But um, that's so interesting. So what is it that you want? Okay, how can I say this? What are you writing in women's fiction that's making you happy? I tend to write women. I, I write women who are more like myself. Mm-hmm. So I don't, and I don't see a lot of women who are like myself in women's fiction. And I, I think I don't see a lot of women who are like myself in romance either. Actually, when I wrote Snapdragon, that was supposed to be an ironic clap back at the billionaire romance. <laughs> okay. Um, 
because I mean, that's, I don't think that's the way real, like, I think the, the millionaire and billionaire who are the uh, hero and heroine of that story operate very differently from other millionaires and billionaires that you see in other romances. So that was kind of me being like giving a different perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, I, you know, for me sometimes, so a lot of times the conflict that I see for women and women's fiction is that the woman lacks confidence and that's what she needs to get over. She needs to find strength within herself. Mm-hmm. And that's just not my story. And I get a little bit, um, you know, I, that's not a transformation that I'm that interested in seeing. Okay. I'm somebody, I'm somebody who has a lot of, internal strength but has a lot of real world external problems like it's still hard being a black woman in corporate america Mm -hmm. right like most of the problems that i have in my life you know there's internal growth to be had but i still have a lot of i still have a lot of things that i'm dealing with that are just um you know not the kinds of things that i see reflected in women's fiction do you so do you think there will be a shift? I mean, there's certainly been a shift. Okay, so there's there's like two things going on, at least as far as I see. So one is like the shift in romance to be more inclusive um in ter- in terms of what's promoted public and publishing wise, and then in own voices and that kind of thing. And then a second shift, like people talking about Black Lives Matter and other things, where there's a sh- uh how can we say this? People are noticing. I don't even know what the right word is for this. Um, that black people have different experiences in America than white people may have or other races may have. So in my head, in terms of art, although I always feel art leads the way, but in, let's just talk about like television and publishing where art sometimes follows. In my head, it would be a marriage of those kinds of things Um changing what is published or changing what is seen on screen. Do you see that happening? Well, I don't know. I think there are ways in which it could shift that are not overtly about telling underrepresented stories. Like, Mm -hmm. so for example, what I just described to you, I understand why it might not work for certain ethnic groups. Right. So for example, like I was talking to, I was talking to my coach last night, for example, And I was explaining to him, like, I am inherently confident because my parents, you know, I was a black girl growing up in a really, really white area. There were no other black kids that went to my school. And my parents taught me, like, you're like, nobody's going to validate you. Nobody's Mm -hmm. going to ever validate you. And you have to be confident within yourself. Right. And I grew up knowing that and like being confident and finding my voice is, is not one of my problems. Okay. And I think that there are other cultures that are not, um, you know, that are like not like white American sort of like Anglo-Saxon type cultures where, you know, where you have a lot of women who don't have any trouble finding their voice. And then when you have this huge critical mass of, um, of women's fiction where the theme is, oh, she needed to find her voice, that's just not going to be interesting to a lot of people. That's true. So. I don't think it's going to, I don't think it has to be a big shift towards, oh, let's see people who look different. I Mm -hmm. think it's just, how can we come up with a more universal set of themes and heroines who will feel relevant to um, readers who don't have sort of the cultural problems that white women have? 
That's so interesting. I don't know. Wow, I don't know. Um, because I, and I don't actually know this, I don't know the percentage of like indie published women's fiction versus um, traditional publishing, but that would be, that would be a sea change um, because women's fiction has been on a, a very, a path that has not changed much over time. Um, and I don't yeah, know. And if you look at the readers, I mean, if you look at the reader demographics for women's fiction, it's like 50 year old white women is like mm-hmm. huge is like, those are the people who are reading women's fiction. And it's like, okay, but so culturally American 50 year old white women have had probably distinct experiences from a whole lot of other women. No. And I think that's true. But then the question I always have about that is, um, because I'm rounding up to 50 sooner than, rather than later, is that no offense to people my age, but we're not here forever. So um, for readers who are 25, you know, 30, I feel like they, in theory, they will, might want something different. Um, because, um, and I know this from writers who write in genres that are popular with older readers, their biggest worry is about their readership attrition and death. And then, you know, appealing to a whole different audience that's like maybe 30 or 40 years younger than the audience that you've been writing for. Yeah. And I think the expectations of those audiences are really different. And it's interesting that readership, like that romance readership is going up in those demographics, because I do think that, and that plenty of romance authors have been able to sort of change with the times. I actually think romance is, this is a whole other conversation. I think romance is not one single market. I think there are two romance markets. And the second romance market really reflects that, those like changing reader expectations that that, that second romance market is moving. Oh, wow. So what do you think the second romance market is? Um, I wish I had more time to read, but writing really takes up, a, sucks up so much of my time right now. Um, I, I think there's a, I think there's what I call kind of like the romances like that you get in Target you know, or in Walmart, I think there are, um, I think there's a set of romance readers who are, this is a terrible way to think about it, but, um, you know, I think there are readers who are more in the heartland who, you know, want to read cowboy romances, right? um, who may want to read small town romances, and that heroine that's in that that sort of romance and the hero that's in that sort of romance is a really different hero and heroine than the romance that is being written and read on the coasts. All right. And that's I, I true. It's like the middle of America versus the coasts. Um, and I think there is an unacknowledged kind of divide and not an unhealthy one necessarily, but I just, I think there are two sets of, authors and readers and actually I think a lot of the tension in RWA comes from the lack of acknowledgement that maybe romance isn't a monolith. That's so interesting because it's true. It, so I live in Los Angeles and I know a number of people who you know write and work on television and that's obviously a tension that exists in that because TV shows are nationwide and there are shows that people work on that are we, we call them distinctly coastal and there are shows that people work on that I'm like, I don't get it. And they're like, the show is not for you. And um, <laughs> no, it's, and I'm like, okay, I get it. Like, that, that's a good answer. And we're, we're good now. Um, I mean, and so that has been interesting. But because of the way television is done and streaming is done, it's, you know, it's streamed to everyone. And so then you, 
and even I guess streaming has made it easier to pick and choose. Like I want to watch this kind of show and other people watch that kind of show and we're all good. Um, although it hadn't been that way when I was growing up with three networks. So that's um, interesting. But in books, I hadn't thought about it that way. But you're right, because I've been to earlier in my career when I used to travel for work more, I have been to uh, reader events um, in the Midwest as opposed to reader events on the coast. And those are very different events. And I did not know that until I, I flew to Texas once and I was on the George Bush freeway, at which point I call somebody and they go, which George Bush is this? <laughs> and she's like, does it matter? I'm like, I've never been to Dallas. Um, and I did a reader event. And at that point I was like, oh my God, you're looking for something different than what I write. Like I had no idea. Um, yeah. And I like that term distinctly coastal. And I wish, I wish there were a way for us to talk about that without sounding, you know, kind of tribalist. Like I mm-hmm. think it would be a healthy conversation for the romance industry to have, but the romance industry has so many other problems that we haven't kind of gotten to that point. No, no, I don't know if that's, that's so interesting. I don't know if that's a conversation um, that is going to come up. It is something we talked about when I used to go to local meetings for my RWA chapters. It's something that we talked about. And obviously my chapters would be located in Southern California. Um, And, but, and a lot of people who were like Southern California people were writing distinctly for what they called like the biggest audience. And I, I, is that, I don't know. I, I don't know if I found it surprising. I still sort of have my feelings about it, but I appreciate people's ability to market and target who they think the biggest buyers are. Um, and I was like, I get it. You want an addition on your house. You would like, you know, granite counters. Like I understand what you're doing. Um, but I had not thought about it up until then because I felt that universe romance was more universal, but this is many years right. ago. <laughs> Well, and this is something that Hollywood does too, which is, you know, Hollywood will go make the sequel because they want to follow what they know can sell. And I think that's what publishers do too. Publ- you know, they want a sure thing. This is an industry with thin margins for everybody involved. Right. And, um, you know, there's not a lot of risk taking. And if depending on how you're, you know, doing critical thinking about your marketing, it's easy to say that an audience isn't there because that audience hasn't proven itself. Right. But I think the backlash around publishing and around all media is proof that the audience is there. And, you know, maybe somebody will finally come around to, you know, figuring that out in romance. No. And it's, and speaking, thinking about this in terms of women's fiction, I remember the whole Terry McMillan thing and God knows, I feel like this has got to be 30 years ago. Oh, my timing. And people were like, I'm so surprised she sold because we didn't think there was an audience. And I'm like, okay, so if the audience is there now, what? And it was so interesting to see, like her and maybe like, let's say 10 follow-up authors get published and then people are back to, there's no audience there. And I'm like, okay, I thought we already had this conversation. And um, it was surprising. It's surprising to have the same conversation again, because I thought it had been decided and therefore you can, you know, market to whatever you call this niche, this group, whatever. Um, But I feel like in a lot of ways we're back to, no, 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 that market exists. Right. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. And, um, you know, I think people find what they're looking, you know, I think if industry's not providing it, people are finding it elsewhere. I think there are a lot of missed opportunities still. Yes. And it's, um, well, it's one of the things I consider to be a shame, but I can't, I would like to control it all, but I cannot control it all. Um, but I, as a person, well, as who I am, I have found it difficult to always find what I'm looking for. Um, 
and I spend a lot of time, at least I used to like reading blogs and reading reviews and like trying to find more of what I want. I actually don't do it as much as I used to. Cause I don't know, maybe the 10 year old, I don't have as much time. Um, but I, I don't want to say I resented it, but I did to some degree resent all the work I had to do to find what I was looking for. As opposed yes, me to- too. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I do that, that too. And I buy a lot of books that I end up not liking, unfortunately, but, um, you know, so I feel like I just have to write the books that I want to see and hope that somebody will look at that and be like, oh, people like that. Good. Let's get more of those. So what, so let me ask you this. What is the story? Uh, uh, what is the story you're trying to tell? So for for example, somebody recently asked me the story I was trying to tell in books. And after she asked me the question, I had to pause for probably 23 minutes and think about what it was I was trying to say in my books, but I finally figured it out. But do you have, do you think a core theme or something that you're trying to express or get across um, in your books? You know, when I imagine them in my mind, I'm really not trying to get something specific across, but I think by the time I write them, Mm -hmm. I have noticed that I always end up with social justice themes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I always end up with some sort with feminist themes. Like I wrote a gay romance and there's like a huge feminist, like with two guys and there's a huge feminist subplot. Like Mm -hmm. the dad, there were, there were fraternal twins and the dad died and left him the business and she never got half. And like, you know, um, so those are feminism and social justice are the two things that I seem to not be able to not put into everything I write. It's fascinating. It's a, it's just fascinating when you look back and you're thinking, oh yeah, I had something to say. But you know, it, I'm gonna be honest. As individual stories come to me and characters come to me, I feel like I'm just telling a story. <laughs> but you know, a survey of the work um, has revealed that I have some thoughts um, that I keep saying over and over again. Um, what is it for you? Now I'm curious because that's that's like the exact same experience I've had. Oh, so what the what I came to after I was asked the question is that I think I write stories about and I'm going to qualify this difficult women. So women who have difficult pasts or difficult mm. backgrounds um, and may be, be thorny. Let me just say that maybe thorny or whatever mm. um, are worth loving. Like they are just as lovable as people who are easy to love. And um, so that's, but that's my, like, that's my thing. Like I, when she asked me, I really had to think about it because nobody had ever asked me before. And I, you know, I like, you know, I thought about it a lot and I realized that that's the story I'm trying to tell. To be frank, it's probably my story, but that's a different conversation. Um, Cause oh I started gosh, to think of, I started to think about it and I was like, Oh, you know, I may be prickly and um, I'm less prickly than I used to be. Um, but that doesn't mean I'm not lovable. And so it's just the story I think that I like to tell, but I also like it's- social justice. <laughs> It's funny that you say that because I think I think that I write prickly women too. I think I write women who the who get a lot of their prickliness from the fact that the world is not really ready for the kind of women that they are. Like I feel like I write women who would be great if they were born fifty years from now, right? But they're still a little too much for like today's social expectations, and that causes them issues. No, and this is so. What I the original original. When I first started publishing, the feedback I got from readers was, I love your heroes, but your heroines are a little much. And so, um, you know, I don't know what to say. I was like, oh, okay. And 
but that's also came with a revelation. So I've read romance probably since I was little. My grandmother kept them in her house. So I started reading like seven or eight. And my sense of ro- what I wanted to write when I wanted to write romance is I wanted to write the same book, but different. And it, mm-hmm. I was in the shower one day, like five or six books in lamenting sales about something. And I thought, oh, people want the same, but the same. And it took me a long time to realize what I thought people were ready for or wanted was not necessarily what they wanted and that's fine so um what i want the difference i wanted to put forth is not necessarily the difference people want you know i that has been my experience as well that's totally been my experience that resonates with me so much people think yeah people think they want something different and they want something kind of different but um you know it's it's great when you find people who really 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 love what you write but it's also tough it's been tough for me to realize that like that some of my stuff just is not mainstream enough for folks right so to to be frank to that end so i have not i have stopped writing romance for right now um and i'm only writing legal thrillers and it's been interesting because my legal thrillers now have you know a lot of women's fiction thrown in because that that urge i can't put away in my pocket but what um, I started, I'm focusing more on the legal throws because they, to be frank, they just sell better. And so it has been interesting sort of making that shift because I think I needed to acknowledge to myself and I might get back to it that the kind of romance I write may not be the thing that people want right now or maybe ever, who knows. And so I'm turning my attention to something that people do want because where the prickly heroine and the social justice and um, all, well, I'm into political corruption and things like that um, are better served in legal thrillers and there's an expectation for it and um, more of a mainstream acceptance for it. Um, But I still have a whole lot of romances plotted out in my head that I want to tell the stories. (laughs) Yeah, that's funny. I've I've had a conversation with myself as well, where I'm like, you know, if I'm going to do this much social com- commentary on the haves versus the have-nots, I mean, maybe I should be writing post-apocalyptic dystopia, right? Right. And I do not like world building like that. Like, I don't really want to write it. But I I have many times had that moment where I'm like, you know, I think that, you know, sci-fi and dystopia type readers can handle my level of social commentary in a way that romance readers can't i've had that should i switch genres conversation with myself no and that's a so my son likes uh post-apocalyptic dystopian books more than i do but he's rereading divergent um Mm. and so we were talking so that's all he read all summer was dystopian stuff um, he read books like Starters and Enders. He's we're back to Divergent. Um, he loved The Hunger Games, so on and so on. And we read a lot of them. And um, he's back to Divergent, and we we were just talking about that because that is it. it the the themes are so stark because we were just talking about abnegation and all of the factions in Divergent. And he was like, "What are they really trying to say? Are they saying that like, you know, being selfless is good, or being truthful is good, or whatever?" And those themes are much more apparent. People, they're much more acceptable in that. But it's also, he asked me about that too. And I said, world building is a lot of work and I can't work that hard. It is. It is. Yeah. I think you have to love it. You have to love it. And I don't love world building and fantasy, sci-fi, post-apocalyptic, none of it. Like this would never be my thing. What I want to do is tell like, st- I love reading stories and writing stories that I feel like could happen here now. 
Um, but that's mm-hmm. that's me. That is me. Um, so how many books have you written? Because I'm never good at keeping track of other people's stuff. <laughs> it's hard. To, it's hard to say. I think I've had. I think I've got like seven novels, but then I have a couple of novellas and a couple of books that are short stories or that appear in anthologies i think it's like if you count every single item that i have on sale i think it's about 11 okay. not all of them being novels okay so of those um well let me preface this by saying no i'm not going to preface it which one of those is the most meaningful to you snapdragon um oh. yeah because i think it's i mean i know we keep talking about this one book but it's it's really autobiographical for me um you know snapdragon has this prickly woman who you know, really is ambitious and is highly capable and is high achieving and intimidates a lot of people. And she's actually, so this is another level, but she's actually not prickly. Right. She's just viewed as prickly. Right. Because, because she's so impressive and um, accomplished that it intimidates people. And this is something that I've struggled a lot with in my entire life, where I'm actually a very, I'm a lovely person. I agree. Uh, <laughs> I agree. Right. I am. I'm a very, I'm a very, very nice person, but you know, I'm, I'm confident. I'm tall. I'm good looking. I am accomplished. And that is too much for some people to handle. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it's, I, it's been too much for certain bosses to handle, you know, somebody who they, you know, who they, you know, who they need to support rather than coach or correct. Right. It's been too much for some friendships, you know, like when I've been in friendships with other women and other women are insecure, it's been difficult. A lot of, I found that a lot of female friendships have to do with like, you know, how does this person see themselves next to you? It's been hard in romantic relationships Mm -hmm. because, you know, how do you find, um, you know, what, what sort of man wants to be with a woman who might outshine him. Mm -hmm. And uh, so Snapdragon is really the book that's closest to my heart because I really identify with the heroine because every problem that she's had in life and relationships um, are problems that I've had. This is so fascinating. I'm gonna. I'm actually gonna think about this because I'm coming to the end of a divorce, and um, um, I was talking to a friend about this, and she's like, "No, no, no. There's somebody out there for you." And I was like, "Every time um, I've gone out on a date, people are like, "Wow, that's a lot." And they're like, "So you're okay?" They're like, "So you're a novelist?" I'm like, "Yes." And they're like, "You seem so comfortable with it." I'm like, "Should I not be?" Um, but it's between the, the this and the car and however I live my life. And they're like, actually, somebody, like I was on some dating app and a guy says to me, you travel a lot. And I said, sure. And he said, well, you know, most Americans like don't have a passport. And I said, while that is true, that is not relevant to me. Like I have one and right, I use you're it. Not most Americans. I know. <laughs> and then he was like, so you travel a lot. And I was like, well, I try to travel three or four times a year or whatever I used to do. And he was like, well, I've only ever been one place. I'm like, well, this is not a comparison conversation. Like, this is just a, you asked me if I like to travel and I'm going to answer honestly. Um, But I didn't realize it was something that people found intimidating until, until I found out. Um, 
I actually used to Uber so I didn't have to drive. So people, I wouldn't have to deal with the car question. But because people, like I went on a date once and the guy, he's like, I'm going to walk you to your car. And I was like, God save us all. And then he looks at me, he goes, well, how do you, how do you afford that car as an artist? And I was like, I don't know. I'm not asking you for money. So like, you know, right. But it was just, um, the pushback is just weird. Like, it's just weird. And I'm like, but I'm, it's, I don't even know how to explain it. Like, I'm like, I am this person. I'm fairly confident in who I am. I'm an adult. I mean, it's not like I'm 22. And um, so why are we having a conversation about what you do and what you like, where you go and all these other weird sort of things. And I'm like, okay. So my friend's like, you just need to level up. That's a different conversation, but it's just been interesting because until then I hadn't had that pushback because the only people I met were like friends, you know, who had no dog in the fight of what I was doing. Um, But you're right. No, I really, I'm not surprised by that. I'm not surprised by that. I mean, you're, you know, you have a lot going for you. Um, And that's hard for some people when you have a lot going for you. And it's just, it's, you know, maybe people who have less going, you know, I don't think it's, it's hard for some people. And I think it's hard to be a person, particularly a woman who has a lot going for her, who is not somebody who most people would look at and think, oh, she's probably got a lot going. No. So it's, it's also the incongruence, but I can't until, you know, so in my head, I I am who I am, you know, I just live my life. And then until you face a mirror or whatever you want to call it, some reflection that I had to have some thoughts, I was like, oh, is this how you see me? Oh, oh, I didn't like, I didn't even think about it. I mean, I didn't think about it. Although I did start Ubering to meet people. So I didn't have to answer questions about the car. So (laughs) different conversation. But um, so what is it that you're looking to write in the future then? Uh, I really want to write more. um, I want to write more of my own experience, which sounds weird because I've just told you that I wrote a book that feels autobiographical to me. Like I think I think there is some of me in all of my books, but I think there's a deeper experience that I've had that I haven't dared to put on the page. Mm -hmm. And I honestly don't know whether I'm ready to write that for various reasons, but I think there are some of my own experiences that I want to put into characters and deal with more directly. That's so interesting because I was thinking about this. So I have a character in my legal thrillers. I'm writing book 10 and her name is Casey Court. And like one day she was sitting one day recently she was sitting around talking to somebody and she was like, why am I living small? And I like called my friend. I was like, Oh my God, I think Casey benefited from like years of my own therapy. Finally. <laughs> like she's like, Oh my God, why, what am I doing? Um, but it's been, I, I, I hear what you're saying. And that's something I thought about, although I will say this, like, um, like I, I've talked about this, but Pat Conroy, you know, like who wrote the Prince of Tides and all these other books, like, you know, had uh, a fairly public, I don't want to say that fallout with his family because of the autobiographical nature of his books. And I feel like the first books I wrote were more autobiographical and I'm getting away from that. Um, cause I, maybe because I've run out of my own life experiences. Um, so it's been interesting to, or rather, my characters are growing more than I have personally grown, which I, I love. I'm like, look at them grow. I'm stuck over here, but look at them <laughs> um, grow. But um, it's so interesting. So what is it, the last question I guess I have for you is what, how is it that food ended up being like a theme in your books? Because um, I like to eat, but I never write about it. <laughs> I 
Oh, so I was a food, wine, and travel writer. So I, um, I took a moment. I took a moment in 2008. I left my super, super, super stable job um, to take a much better job in the banking industry, and I got this huge raise, and it was awesome. But it was 2008, right? So, uh, like three months after I get my dream job, the company that I'm working for, which was a, which was a which was a subsidiary of um, GE mm-hmm. ends up completely going, completely going bankrupt and having to reorganizing after the whole Lehman Brothers recession. Right, yes. yep. So I decided at that time, I think I got laid off in December on my birthday. Interestingly, oh, gosh. it was my 30th. I got laid off on my 30th birthday. Oh, and I was so much reckoning trip. right there. I know I was on a business trip in a terrible, terrible place. Let's just put it that way. Mm-hmm. It was like not a business trip to someplace cool. It was a business trip to a very like mm-hmm. uninteresting small town. I got laid off while I was not at home on my birthday. And um, at that time I had a trip to Africa planned. So I was going to Africa for like a month in February mm-hmm. and it was December and everybody was getting laid off in the financial industry and I was like, it's going to be hard for me to get a job. And then if I get a job, I can't go away. I can't go to Africa for a month. Right. For <laughs> so sure. I was like, I'm just going to chill. So, you know, three months later, I decide that I actually don't really want to go back to mainstream work that we probably want to, this year is probably going to be the year that we start a family. Mm-hmm. So I decided that I'm just going to do some consulting and writing. And during that year, I was like, you know, I want to seriously pursue writing. I took a lot of writing classes actually at a place, at a, at a writing salon in San Francisco where I'm going to be teaching this fall, which is interesting. So full circle. I love that. Uh, or this winter. Right. Um, and I decided at that time, I had only lived in California for about two or three years. And I decided that I was going to become a wine writer. So I got certified as a sommelier. Oh, you did it. I'm so cool. <laughs> oh, and I expensed all that wine through my business. <laughs> And I started doing travel writing in Northern California. I was covering like Big Sur up to about Mendocino and all of the places that I was covering were places that I hadn't been because I had just moved to California and I had a really intense job in the years since I'd moved to California. Um, But, you know, I had worked in restaurants. One of my first jobs in high school was um, I worked in an Austrian restaurant. Actually, my boss at that restaurant sent me to Austria because I wanted to learn German and I wanted to visit Austria. So I spent a couple of summers in Austria with his relatives and Mm -hmm. I dated an Austrian guy who was the chef at that restaurant. Wow. Um, And then I worked in restaurants when I lived in New York. I went to college, I went to undergrad in New York and I I worked in restaurants in New York um, and ultimately ended up dating another guy who was a foodie during my time in New York. So I I was always kind of... um, you know, interested in the culinary world, grew up with good cooking. Both of my parents could cook. I can cook. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've always loved the culinary world. Wow. Okay. I mean, this is, okay. That's quite fascinating. I could do an entire other podcast because I have so many thoughts on what your thoughts are of Austria because I spent a lot of time in Hungary and we were just talking, I was just talking to someone today in Hungary about where a vaccine might come from in Austria was the primary uh, location. Um, but obviously their, their relationship with Austria is quite fraught. So a whole different, yeah. <laughs> whole different thing. But, um, I, al- I almost specialized in the Habsburg empire. I almost, that, that was almost like my undergrad field of specialization. Oh, that's empire. so fascinating. Cause I think a lot about it. Well, cause obviously when I'm in Europe, people spend a lot of time talking about history and all of that. And so I think a lot about it, especially, um, my son and I are playing this game called GeoGuessr, which I'm basically it's a Google map game where they drop you off anywhere on earth and you have to figure out where you are. 
and you get higher, yeah. the closer you are, the greater number of points you get. So we were dropped in Poland like last night or the night before. And we we're like, oh, this is, these are Habsburg buildings. <laughs> this is like the, this is like the Austro-Hungarian empire building type. So, you know, one guess and it was Poland and we were like 50 miles off. I'm going to be honest. This, the next one was Western Michigan. And that took like 10 minutes. <laughs> Yeah. I've never been to Western Michigan. My son looks at me. He's like, what is this? I'm like, well, it's America or Canada because it's English and the signs look familiar, but let's say. Um, so that was harder. <laughs> but um, it's so interesting because there was such a large influence from that empire across like so okay. many countries. And it's fascinating to see when you travel, you're like, oh, they were here building these buildings. And you can see the food influences, the architectural influences and the artistic influences. And it's quite interesting um, to me. Yeah, it totally is. It's one of those weird, and I think I would have been really content just studying it. I don't know what I would have done professionally, but um, I'm also really fascinated with the Basque country. I spent some time looking at Basque country, and to know those places is just fascinating. Wow. Okay. So <laughs> there's so many places that you should go because I have my thoughts about that because I um, I have my own fascinations, which are basically Eastern Europe and then like Korea and. Um, <laughs> some other places that I'm fascinated by for no reason that I could ever account for because there are places I've been where I'm just like this is not for me like I went to Japan and I was like mm, this is not for me and I went somewhere recently and I was like oh this is this is just not my place like this is an interesting trip but this is not for me um and then some places right. I land and I'm like oh my god this is for me <laughs> Um, totally. and I don't know what it is about any of those places in particular, what they have in common, but it's something I do think about my, my tiny little, um, geographical fascinations or geopolitical yeah. as they may be. Um, but that's great. So I do hope that you get to travel soon. I don't know. I don't know. Like I, I don't know, but I did, I will say this. So I did get an email from like both KLM, Air France, um, and uh, British Airways that they have extended you know, all of my frequent flyer things, as well as EasyJet in yeah, Europe. Yeah. <laughs> but like even one of them no, was- good. I want my status. I mean, like, seriously. No, but one of them, it was only until the end of December. And I'm like, so, uh, yeah, because <laughs> I can't, I can't use these points. You know, it was, it was that followed by when we see you again. But, oh, I think um, KLM was discontinuing their iFly magazine because they're like, well, there's nothing really to talk about you know you can't go yeah. here and I was like oh wow that's wow you're just wow that was I was like I don't even know what to do with that um so I read the last issue and I thought well there are a couple places I want to go and I, I I agree with you that like sitting around contemplating travel that may not be possible soon is not the best sort of message to send but it's a little sad I'm gonna be frank <laughs> I mean I feel like somebody and maybe this has happened I feel like the travel industry really should have stepped up and served up vacations that sound appealing like if somebody sent me a compelling vacation package that mm -hmm. was like that, that felt socially distanced like if Americans sent me something that was like oh we'll get you to France at a really good price and you know we'll help you like rent a private villa like okay like that's like now I'm listening I wish I feel like if somebody served up something that sounded doable where I didn't have to put any effort mm -hmm. I would consider it no I don't think I disagree with you I think um even this uh late summer like my son and I were like well if we were to go somewhere he was like well can we go to the beach and then the fires happened and I was like we're not driving up the California coast right now um but if somebody could serve it up I would be I would be delighted and at this point I'm not that picky like somebody said to me this morning you miss movies and I was like I don't miss movies 
like in theory, but like right now, if you told me I could go to the movie and I could also drive somewhere, I would do both. And I don't really like both. So I was like, I just miss everything. I miss getting out, I think, and seeing something other than the four walls and like, you know, the 10 blocks that I circled to get gas and whatever. Um, but I can only hope that happens sooner rather than later. <laughs> yeah. And I've had my, I've had a camping trip too, that like, cause of the fires, like, it's right. like, all right, well, camping's gotta be safe. And then it's like, oh, can't go camping this weekend. I mean, I think California's really gotten the one, two, three, four, five punch. That's <laughs> no doubt. So what's up next for you book wise? Writing um, and publishing, so actually, not reading. <laughs> So I wrote a book for um, for Kenny Reed. So, so Kenny Reed has a, a Smarty Pants Universe. Yes. Like Smarty Pants Romance Universe where right. you can write in one of her universes. And I wrote a book for the Green Valley Universe. And actually Kenny, Kenny's books are the books that like got me out of my post-child funk. Like right. literally I read the Moving in the City series and I was like, oh my God, I'm inspired to read and write again. So this is one of those like weird dreams come true where I get to write in a universe that I really, really am in love with as a fan. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's probably my next release. That's going to come out. One of my next releases is going to come out in um, 2021. And I'm also going to release at some point Romancing the Stove, which is oh. my master's series. Like, okay. Okay. Romance. <laughs> Uh, well, this is great and delightful. So, um, as I will be honest, so I will link to some of these things in the show notes, although I already did the thing for Snapdragon because I was like, I know the book I actually read now. I don't have to try to guess. Uh, I looked it up. I'm so proud of myself. Um, but I will certainly um, link to that in the show notes. And I can't thank you enough for taking the time out to talk to me when I know children and everybody is like swirling around. <laughs> No, thank you so much. This has been amazing. I feel like we have 75,000 more things that we need to talk about just in terms of trading life advice. So I will talk to you more offline. So will I, and I'm going to send you my list of Korean drama, like no, no joke, because I have, I have so many thoughts and feelings that I want to share. Um, but I think there's one that you may like that is like this beautiful, beautiful tale that I wanted to send you. Yay. I know. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. 